identifying with the, you know, queer studies or whatever it might be. And yet they've had certain kind of reservations about the 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 influence of critique, and they felt they couldn't really articulate them without being seen as some kind of reactionary or conservative figure. And I think they now feel, in a sense, they feel more comfortable about expressing those reservations. That's Rita Felsky, William R. Kennan Jr., professor of English at the University of Virginia, as well as the 2016 Niels Bohr Professor of English at the University of Southern Denmark. Today we hear from Professor Felsky about her recent book, The Limits of Critique, in which Felsky examines, and is often critical of, the ways many scholars write about literature. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. For the past few decades, literary study and literary criticism, at least as they're practiced in the academy, have been dominated by a certain style of interpretation and analysis, often called critique. The point of critique, Rita Felsky suggests in her book, isn't to stand in front of a literary text, but in a way to try to get behind it, to view it with a certain suspicion, to reveal it to be something other than what it says it is, something usually worse than what it says it is. Felsky points out that this method of criticism has, in fact, been very useful. It has helped scholars show how the literary canon, so-called, has not been handed down from on high and should not be taken as received truth with a capital T. Critique has also helped scholars embrace new kinds of texts, especially those produced by writers outside the canon, that is, texts not just written by dead white men. But then Felsky suggests that the dominance of critique does come at a cost. In this interview, Felsky describes what some of those costs are. She also points to some ways forward for literary study as well as for the humanities generally. All that and more coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Professor Felsky, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Oh, I'm happy to be here. So you're the William R. Kennan Jr. Professor of English at the University of Virginia, as well as the editor of New Literary History. It, it seems like then it would be safe to call you a prominent literary scholar, and yet your recent book, The Limits of Critique, seems to take issue with much of the work produced in your field. Specifically, you see a problem with the way scholars tend to examine works of literature. They, they approach them, you say, with a kind of suspicion. The term you use is critique or the hermeneutics of suspicion. Could you talk about that? What is critique and what problems do you have with it? Sure. Uh, well, you know, critique is a word that's been around in uh, in the humanities, pol- politics and philosophy, you know, for a, a few hundred years. If you think of Kant and Marx and various other luminaries. Um, you know, when I'm thinking about it, I'm not really trying to tackle that whole big history. I'm just trying to think about why the word, what the why the words become so important in literary studies in the last few decades and what it means. And so perhaps, you know, I just give you very briefly uh, a five part you know, definition. What does this word critique mean? Well, it seems to me it has five aspects. First of all, it's secondary. In other words, a critique is responding to something, right? It's commenting on something else. It's not standing by itself. It's a response to some kind of commentary, uh, assessment of some other phenomenon, uh, you know, a text, uh, a piece of writing, a film, whatever it might be. 
Uh, secondly, it has some kind of negative dimension. Now, that can be a kind of very obviously negative dimension. You know, I think this film is sexist, or it could be a very subtle kind of negative dimension, you know, a kind of ironic, judicious calling into question. But I think critique, uh, pretty much by definition, implies some process of finding a problem, a fault, a defect in whatever's being examined. The third point would be that critique has an intellectual dimension, which is to say that usually those who use the word critique try and distinguish what they're doing from ordinary forms of criticizing. You know, you might go to a movie and criticize it. You might criticize your neighbor's, I don't know, you know, haircut. <laughs> critique is not just that, right? It claims to be much more sophisticated, more philosophical, more self-reflexive. It's a special kind of questioning. Fourthly, um, in spite of this intellectual dimension, it also has the claim to be, as we might say, from below. In hmm. other words, it claims to speak for those who are, you know, oppressed or downtrodden or marginalized or oppressed in some way. And so it claims to be speaking on their behalf and to challenge the powers that be. And then perhaps finally, the, perhaps the slightly most provocative part of my definition would be critique does not tolerate rivals. And what I mean by that is the critique really, you know, when you think of the word, it's, it, it has a very strongly normative dimension. It has a strong value attached to it. Because if you think, what is the opposite of being critical? It's being uncritical, right? Who the hell wants to be uncritical? Certainly not professor, certainly not academic. So the very word has a kind of built-in value attached to it. It kind of stacks the cards in a certain way. And as a result, it becomes very difficult then to find alternatives to critique because everyone just turns around and says, hey, you're uncritical. <laughs> So, so you write, and I have uh, I have a few questions about most of those, if not all of those points. But first, I'll just quote from your introduction. You write, uh, "quote There is something perplexing about the ease with which a certain style of reading has settled into the default option. Why is it that critics are so off the mark to interrogate, unmask, expose, subvert, unravel, demystify, destabilize, take issue, and take umbrage?" End quote. So what, what's in these, these verbs, these metaphors? What unites them? You, you say something else to this effect in your book, that scholars try to sort of get behind a text rather than stand in front of it and look it in the face. It, it seems like the project is to reveal that a text is something other than what it says it is, usually something worse than what it says it is. H have I got this right? Sure. Yeah. And I actually have a, a kind of a bit of fun, um, you know, trying to think about the various parallels between uh, literary critics and detectives, you know, mm. and it's pretty obvious there are quite a few parallels. I mean, one parallel would be, you know, if you think of someone like Sherlock Holmes, you know, he looks at, you know, he looks at a, you know, a pile of cigarette ash and everyone, is, everyone else ignores it. And he finds these hidden clues, right? He finds his hidden meaning in a cigarette ash. Uh, you know, so in the same way as the expert detective finds hidden meanings in ordinary objects that other people ignore, so the expert literary critic finds hidden meanings, you know, that the ordinary reader uh, wouldn't normally find. So first of all, what the two have in common is that they're both trying to pin down, read texts, read, read things as clues, basically, and find hidden meanings uh, that other people fail to see. And then secondly, you know, the critic, like the detective, usually has a moral agenda. In other words, mm. it's about trying to pin down a guilty party. In the case of a detective novel, you know, it's usually, I know, the butler, whoever, you know, who killed the, the pantry maid. Uh, you know, in the case of criticism, um, it's rather different because usually we know at the start who the guilty party is because the scholar has already told us, you know, it's some... <laughs> 
larger social systems. There's no great surprise there. Uh, but again, there's a strong, uh, strong reliance on a language of guilt, usually, mm. and, a, and an attempt to kind of pin down some guilty party. Um, so that's one, that's one part of what's going on, although there's also a lot more, I should say. Well, that, you, you suggest this in your book, uh, at, I think, at compelling uh, length. You say that critique doesn't just stand for a set of arguments or methods. Rather, it's a kind of disposition or attitude or even uh, language game, I think is the phrase you use. So what do you mean by that? Uh, and, and why would this be an important point for uh, literary critics to sort of realize? Well, that was really part of what I was really trying to get at, you know, and that's why I took this word critique, which is kind of standard usage um, in literary studies, and I replaced it with this other word that comes from a, a philosopher who's been important in religious studies, Paul Ricoeur. Uh, I use this phrase, uh, hermeneutics of suspicion. You know, so let's emphasize the word suspicion there. You know, why is that word important? Um, well, I'm really trying to think about the way in which academic study is itself infused with a certain kind of attitude or ethos or way of feeling or what I call a mood, you know, a kind of critical mood. And the reason that's important, I think, is because, um, you know, when people engage in this kind of critical analysis, they often emphasize the value of this analysis in terms of its political and philosophical implications. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's a rigorous kind of thinking, it's philosophically rigorous, or it's politically radical. And they don't often think about it in terms of its emotional dimensions. Um, in fact, I think it's true to say that often critique is very suspicious of emotion. You know, it often distrusts the fact that people identify with novels or films. It's often wary of feeling. And the, the implication there is that if you get, engage in this kind of critique, you're moving beyond feeling. And, and what I really want to suggest is that that's actually, that's actually not the case, that critique is itself, first of all, a set of emotions, a certain kind of affective relationship, an emotional relationship to the text, one based on distrust rather than, rather than trust. And then secondly, you know, going back to the word habit, that it is itself a series of habit, something you ease into. You know, you go to graduate school and you take seminars and everyone talks in this way and you learn to talk in this way. That doesn't mean that's a bad thing necessarily, uh, but it certainly is, a, is a, a habitual response that you're trained into. It's not just some purely intellectual exercise um, that is outside of habit, that is outside of feeling. It is itself, I think, very much shaped by those qualities. Well, this, this sort of habit or tendency to be suspicious of texts is kind of surprising. So I'm I'm just just fair uh, acknowledgement to listeners. I'm I'm a graduate student in literature right now, and I think that um that a lot of my fellow grad students are equally surprised by this and actually and actually skeptical of their willingness themselves to become suspicious so quickly of texts. And and that's I'm I'm guessing that's in part because you know when when we first started studying literature and when any literary scholar first started studying literature it was because they liked books they liked reading novels so so how could critique how could this attitude have become such a dominant practice if it doesn't treat works of literature as friends but rather as you seem to suggest as kinds of suspects well i guess first of all i, do, I want to say one thing you know to add to before I just go into, into your question into a bit more depth, I, I want to add one thing to what I said before, because, you know, what I said before might have given the impression that literary critics, you know, always treat literary works as enemies. And in mm. fact, that's actually not the case. I mean, certainly some critics do. But what you often find, in fact, in literary studies is that certainly, you know, many, many scholars, in fact, including scholars who are 
um, you know, broadly suspicious towards the world, you might say, um, nevertheless do have a strong admiration for literary works. I think mm -hmm. it's important to acknowledge that and not to caricature what's going on. But what I would add there is, why do they admire those literary works? They admire those literary works precisely because they engage in critique. You see what I'm getting at? In right. other words, you don't, you don't get outside the same mindset. You don't criticize the work for being complicit and guilty and part of the status quo. You admire the work for itself being critical and suspicious. Mm. But the, still, the, the, the prevailing assumption is that being critical and suspicious is the only feasible thing to be as a literary scholar and that literary works are worthy of praise You know, if you can show somehow that they're subverting or questioning or challenging something. And I don't think that's wrong exactly, but I think it's, it's highly limiting when it becomes, you know, the only way of doing things. You know, as to the question of why it became so important, well, I mean, I think, you know, it's not that this was just some kind of um, unfortunate error in the history of thought. I mean, critique becomes important in literary studies for a lot of good reasons. And I'm certainly not trying to engage in any kind of, you know, wholesale rejection of of this way of thinking. I, mean, I was trained in it. I've used it. I think it's incredibly important. I still teach it to my students. Um, and, and a couple of the reasons why it became important, I think, was, first of all, um, you know, the, the literary studies especially is always faced, in fact, a certain degree of suspicion from people in the outside world who say, well, you know, I know, I know how to read a novel, right? Mm -hmm. Why should I go to university to learn how to read a novel? Anybody can do that. Um, so there's always been a sense that or at least there's often been a sense there's something slightly flaky about literary studies, you know, it, it, how serious is it as a field? You know, it doesn't seem to have quite the same rigor as, I don't know, sociology or mm. physics or something. Uh, so I think part of the turn to these new critical vocabularies was an attempt to show that, in fact, literary studies was a serious scholarly subject that could use these, for example, very complex philosophical ideas that could call into question many of our prevailing assumptions. And then secondly, you know, the obvious reason, a uh, second obvious reason was, you know, the, the massive change in the demographics of the university, that suddenly you had many more women, people of color, mm -hmm. previously marginal groups going to the university, finding that the kinds of literature that they were studying was extremely, um, you know, was very limited in certain ways. You know, it's hard to remember now, but, you know, even, you know, 30 years ago, Virginia Woolf was, was very rarely taught in universities. You know, it was quite common to go to go and study English and to encounter pretty much all male canon with, you know, maybe Jane Austen and George Eliot in the 19th century, but that was about it. Um, and similarly, you know, with uh, literature from outside the Western canon or African-American writers and so on. So there was a, you know, part of the process of critique was really trying to upset things a bit and to question uh, what had been taken for granted about literary studies and to think more about the social dimensions of literature. It has many social dimensions. So that was all important. So, you know, critique started off as a questioning of dogma in literary studies and a question, a questioning of a certain complacency about why we were studying literature and why that mattered. You know, the problem is, I'm suggesting that it has itself, um, as inevitably is the case, turned into a kind of dogma, I think. So you acknowledge in your book that, quote, uh, critique proves to be a remarkably efficient and smooth running machine for registering the limits and insufficiencies of texts, you you make reference to a lot of the political, the important political and ideological projects um, that started, especially in the '60s, uh, the opening of the canon, um, uh, you know, the opening of the canon to to literary works that weren't just written by white males, usually dead white males. Um, this seems this seems to be a trend that 
took hold, especially in the humanities um, around the 60s. So it's not then just a trend. Critique isn't then just a trend um, in literary study. I think, so you write here, I have, I have a quote, when anthropologists unmask the imperialist convictions of their predecessors, when art historians choreograph the stealthy tug of power and domination, when legal scholars assail the neutrality of the law in order to lay bare its hidden agendas, they all subscribe to a style of interpretation driven by a spirit of disenchantment, end quote. So is your position then then critique isn't just something in literary study, it's something that's in the humanities generally? Right. So, you know, um, critique has certainly been widespread across the humanities, and there's been a lot of rethinking of that recently. You know, uh, Michael Roth, for example, you know, the president Wesleyan has written a book about uh, liberal education and and the humanities where he talks about you know he's a history professor and he talks about how his students you know they just find it very easy to go into an automatic pose of suspicion right when faced mm. with an argument to say what's wrong with that what is it hiding you know what is it what are the wars where is it's problematic politics and again those are not it's not that those questions shouldn't be asked i mean i think they really should be asked but then there's a way in which that can somehow cut one off um, from other kinds of relationships to texts, and particularly from the possibility of actually learning something, you know, from the works uh, that one is reading uh, and paying attention to. There seems to be, to me, to be a point when you need to um, perhaps try and develop a stance of receptivity and openness rather than always uh, trying to develop this this kind of stance of invulnerability and defensiveness, where your main goal is to show what the problem is with something rather than try and learn from the text uh, that you're engaging. So that's that's really interesting. I have two questions, I think, about that. The first uh, is, is with the first part of what you said, um, uh, which is that people have been writing about this topic with the humanities generally. It seems like, um, y- you know, whenever you look at the New Republic or the Atlantic or something and the topic of the humanities comes up, uh, it's, it's always, the argument seems always to be that the humanities are somehow in crisis, that they're dying, that they're already dead or something like this. What, what do you think, what do you think of that position? And, and if, if you agree in any sense, do you think it has to do with critique or are, you know, these, um, these, uh, uh, statements of death a bit premature? I think they're very premature, and I think there's there's an increasing dissatisfaction with this kind of rhetoric, I think, often in the university, because it does become a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, mm. right? It's kind of continuing harping on about the humanities are in crisis. It means everyone thinks the humanities are in crisis, and it just, it just makes things worse. Now, that's not to say there aren't real problems, but, I mean, I think part of the issue is that, um, you know, clearly the, the number of humanities majors in areas such as English, especially, I think to some degree history, some of these other majors has significantly gone down in relation to, um, you know, majors across the university as a whole. Part of that, uh, to my understanding, is that there are many more students now that are taking vocationally oriented degrees, right, than they used to be in the past. Uh, there's also some drop in numbers, for example, um, in, in, in English departments, but a significant part of this change landscape is the fact there are many more students going to university than there were in the past, and those specific students are not choosing to major um, in in the classic areas in the humanities. And yes, I think that is a real problem, and I do think that there are you know there are many reasons for this, not all of which could be laid at, at, at the at the at the floor of the, at the door of the humanities. Mm-hmm. I mean, in other words, you know, when you think of you know rocketing tuition costs. 
and a highly precarious job market and a lack of uh, support for public ed education and the fact that you you know you see so many politicians in the US especially you know explicitly saying that you know doing course you know doing a, a major in art history or gender studies is mm. not something um, that should be financed by by US taxes um, clearly there's a much larger situation going on here and that's not something that uh, you know, rethinking our rhetoric would change. So I think one can't be um, naive about what what rethinking our vocabulary can do. There are lots of material, institutional, economic factors in the United States and indeed more generally in the Western world that tinkering with our language can't change. However, I do think that we have, that I do think also though that there has been a bit of a public relations problem in the humanities. And as I say, we have this very, art, very fluent and articulate language of critique and we're much less good at persuading people as to why, you know, the study of literature has a certain kind of value. You know, if you think of him like Harold Bloom, you know, he sells, you know, thousands and thousands of books mm -hmm. talking about why, I don't know, Shakespeare and, and, and various other writers are important. Now, I don't share his particular way of thinking about literature, but clearly the fact that people are buying those books indicates that there is real interest. There is a quite large public interest. Uh, in questions of the value of literature or philosophy or history or whatever it might be. And especially in literary studies, I think, we have not been very good at catering to that large public interest. I think much less so, you know, you do get, you know, best-selling books, for example, in history. I mean, how many best-selling books do you, do you find in literary criticism? Not, not many, unfortunately. So how would you propose scholars start to... Uh shall we say, promote their work or at least um, orient their work toward uh, educated non-specialists, say? How, how, would they, how would they break into the market that, say, Harold Bloom has broken into? <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's a kind of hard question. I, mean, I think, you know, I mean, there, there are problems in literary studies as there are elsewhere, you know, across the humanities that, of course, we're all trained uh, to engage in a highly professionalized discourse, you know, as a way of getting tenure, as a way of... Uh, proving our worth as academic specialists. Um, and that's not going to go away, but I think to some extent, especially after one has tenure, and obviously it's a lot easier for someone like me, uh, one can then try and push against that and try and move towards a kind of writing that is not perhaps quite so esoteric, that's not quite so obscure. You know, if you think of, you know, say, someone in philosophy like my former colleague at the University of Virginia, Richard Rorty, you know, he mm -hmm. had someone who was a an extraordinarily distinguished philosopher. And yet he was able to write in a way that was accessible to really, uh, you know, a significant audience, to really quite a, a, a wide audience across the world. So I think we can certainly do more in terms of, um, you know, using different kinds of languages. The, the worry is that this becomes then dumbing down. Right. Um, that we simplify, we become like journalists, and so on and so forth. I'm sure that that is a risk, but I think it's also a real problem to assume that any form of writing in a more accessible language is a form of dumbing down. I've certainly found, you know, I used to write in an extremely uh, abstract and highly theoretical way. I was trained in a German department, you know, uh, my, my words used to be, my sentences were full of abstractions. And I found that trying to write in a simpler way is actually incredibly difficult. It's actually much more challenging. So perhaps rather than thinking of it as, quote, dumbing down, one might think of it as translating, you know, a more specialized language into one that's more accessible uh, to what I've called, you know, in, in one essay, intellectual strangers. In other words, more accessible to people who don't already share your own particular environment, your own share, your own uh, intellectual mm. assumptions. 
So that that seems right. I think my my initial question was a bit leading and loaded. I think I'll, I'll rephrase then. Do do, mm-hmm. you, do you think that it should be incumbent upon literary scholars to do what you're talking about, which is to write write scholarship and a kind of in a, in a more sort of uh, popular register, or do you think that most literary scholars should do what they have been doing, which is just producing scholarship for uh, other researchers? I certainly don't. I certainly don't. I don't certainly don't think it's something that everybody should be required to do. You know, as you may be aware, in in the United Kingdom, for example, mm. uh, it's now become a measure of uh, you know academic scholarship, the question of public impact. You know, so professors are supposed to it's supposed to be able to demonstrate, usually numerically, how much immediate public impact their scholarship has had, mm. and that actually worries me, as it worries. A great many people because you know there's a lot of scholarship for example that can take a quite long time to produce you know someone who labors 10 years over some you know analysis of um of a, a work of literature or philosophy or wherever it might be and that might turn out to be incredibly important right you know the idea of the idea of evaluating all scholarship in terms of immediate short-term gains and public accessibility i think would be a disaster but having said that I think academics in general, not any particular professor, but I think academics in general could be doing more to try and reach those larger audiences as well, not instead of uh, their usual scholarship, but as well as their usual scholarship. So I see it really much more of a, as a both and rather mm. than uh, replacing one with the other. So then actually to relate this idea of, of both and to your work on critique, I, I'm wondering, so it seems like in your book, it seems like you're suggesting not that we completely abandon critique, but that we just count it as one interpretive method among others. So what what would those other methods uh, be, in your view? How could literary scholars sort of break the habit of just doing critique on the one hand, and then once they've broken the habit, if that's what they want to do, what, what other things could they do with their scholarship? Well, I think, you know, different uh, different literary professors may have different answers to that question. But one, one way I've formulated it, it's, it's a very kind of simple phrase in a way, but it seems to have resonated somehow. Um, so let me just repeat it again. Yeah. Is this idea that we might replace some of our DE prefixes? In other words, our preoccupation hmm. with words like deconstruct, uh, you know, debunk, whatever it might be with RE prefixes. In other words, thinking about how literature remakes, reconfigures, recontextualizes, right? In other words, think more about the significance of literature, not in terms of a kind of negative work of undermining or questioning or challenging, but try and think, if you like, much more about the value added process of literature as an act of making, of composing, of recreating, refashioning, giving us new vocabularies, giving us different ways of thinking about the world, giving us access to various kinds of affective, emotional or perceptual relationships to language to the world that we might not get um, in other kinds of contexts. So I do think, you know, as I say, we've lacked a vocabulary for trying to talk about those procedures. Or, you know, to put it more accurately, we had, you know, a rather older vocabulary, which just, which, you know, tended to say things like, well, literature, you know, speaks universal truths mm. and, and so on. And that, that kind of vocabulary really doesn't kind of wash in my view anymore. So the question is, can we come up with more modest defenses of the value of literature that don't just kind of gesture vaguely towards some notion of, you know, trans, transcendent truth or universal humanity, but can nevertheless think seriously 
about what kind of value literature has. And for me, that involves trying to build much better bridges between the kind of, um, you know, going back to the previous issue we were discussing, between the kinds of writing um, that academics do and the kinds of experiences of literature that ordinary people have. So what's generally been the response to the book? Has it, has it produced uh, much debate in the sort of circles, the scholarly circles you run in? Uh, yeah, I think it has, actually. It's produced a lot of debate. Um, so, uh, you know, I might say I've actually been remarkably uh, relieved and surprised <laughs> by the positive responses. You know, it's had, um, I don't know exactly how many reviews, but maybe eight or ten reviews, including in some... Um, uh, you know, places like the Times Literary Supplement that have been, you know, remarkably positive. So that's been very nice. And perhaps even in, what's even pleased me even more is I've had quite a lot of emails, actually, from complete strangers, as well as some from a few from friends, you know, really expressing their gratitude for the book. And I think one reason they've been they've felt this gratitude is because, um, you know, these are scholars from many different backgrounds, but certainly a number of them, I think, would define themselves as being, you know, probably on the left side of the political spectrum, being feminists or, you know, uh, identifying with, uh, you know, queer studies or whatever it might be. And yet they've had certain kind of reservations about the 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 influence of critique and they felt they couldn't really articulate them without being seen as some kind of reactionary or conservative figure. And because I've tried to um, write this book that, that that discusses some of the problems with critique while at the same time emphasizing, that doesn't mean you're a conservative, it doesn't mean you're a reactionary <laughs> figure, it doesn't mean you want to go back to some, you know, back to the 1950s and sit around sipping sherry, you know, <laughs> talking about the glories of Wordsworth. And I think they now feel, in a sense, they feel more comfortable about expressing those reservations um, now that, you know, there's a kind of a discourse out there um, that allows them, the, or at least gives them some confidence that their views are not as aberrant as they might have thought. I will say also, there's also been a minority of scholars who uh, <laughs> are not at all impressed with what I've written and uh, and take issue with it quite strongly. And... Uh, they tend to be very strong proponents of critique, and their response to my book is to generate yet more critique of the book. Um, so yes, not everyone is an enthusiast. <laughs> could you could, could I could I bother you to give an, just an example? What would uh, what what has one of these uh, counter arguments sort of um, uh, uh, advanced against your book? Um, well, you know, there's several kinds of counter arguments. And the one kind of argument is, is, is potentially a reasonable one, which is to say, that, you know, I've exaggerated the extent to which critique is important, right? And I think that's, that is a kind of an empirical argument to a large extent that we can then debate mm. to what extent is it central, to what extent is it not. You know, I do acknowledge in the book that, um, you know, I'm speaking from a particular institution. I'm speaking as someone who teaches this whole area of theory and critical theory, um, so that these kinds of more critical or suspicious approaches are very much on my radar. And it's certainly true that critique is not dominant everywhere, not in all institutions. You can certainly carve out a good life in literary studies without ever doing critique. Um, so I certainly don't want to Im imply that it's, um, you know, it's everywhere. But I do suggest that it's certainly very influential and it's often seen as especially prestigious. And so some of the arguments are just arguments about, you know, is critique really as important as Felsky thinks it is? And I think they were going to have a reasonable conversation. But then there are other arguments that just do, just in a way, just kind of repeat exactly the same thing that I've 
been diagnosing in a book without seemingly being aware that they're doing so. You know, in other words, it's not that they're taking on board my arguments and saying, okay, I see what you're saying. But on the other hand, they just repeat the very act of critique. You know, mm. so one of the um, defining features of critique, for example, is that when you're engaging with an interlocutor, you don't take the words of that opponent or interlocutor seriously as arguments. You just say, well, you know, you're simply an expression of, you know, dominant values, right? You're simply um, being brainwashed into thinking what you're thinking by a dominant ideology, right? You know, and so you get people saying, well, you know, here's Felsky, she's just a pawn of the neoliberal establishment. You know, here's Felsky's arguments, they're inadequate because she's simply being steered that way um, by, you know, a, a broader ideology or set of beliefs. So that's the classic move of critique, right? Your own position, the position of the person who articulates critique is a position that expects its own arguments to be taken seriously. But when you're engaging the arguments of, opponent, of an opponent, you don't take those arguments seriously as arguments. Mm you explain them in terms of some external cause, which is causing that person to articulate certain ideas without really knowing why they're doing so. So that classic move is then re reproduced, you know, oh, Falsky is simply a pawn of the neoliberal establishment, <laughs> which is exactly an argument that I take on in my book and try and show why it's a problematic argument, not <laughs> especially about me, but about anybody. Um, you know, the best way to counter arguments is to take those arguments seriously as arguments and try and uh, point out the problems or fallacies or incoherences in the arguments. The, the, the best response is not to say, I don't need to take this seriously as an argument because this person is simply a pawn of larger social forces that they do not understand. <laughs> so, so recently you were awarded a professorship at the University of Southern Denmark, as well as a grant amounting to about $4.2 million from the Danish National Research Foundation. So you've already arrived in Denmark, no? And, and what will you be doing there and how long will you be there? Right. So I think all our, all our jaws dropped with shock, you know, when, when I got this, um, this very large grant. You know, it's quite surprising when you contrast the kind of money that's given in the United States or the kind of money that's coming out of a place like Denmark, you know, which has 5 million people. It's probably about the size of New York or something, uh, you know, and the largest grant I've ever got, I think, in the United States was Guggenheim, which I think is around $35,000. And here's the small country of Denmark uh, giving out four million. I mean, it's quite an extraordinary difference. You know, I will say that I don't, none of that money goes to me, unfortunately, um, at least not in an indirect sense. So the money's being used um, to hire uh, innate positions, we're hiring assistant professors, we're hiring postdocs, we're hiring PhD students with decent stipends, uh, we're organizing many conferences, um, various kinds of workshops, various forms of intellectual interaction. Um, and so the idea is that really to take some of these ideas that I've been trying to explore in recent books about the limits of critique, about how we might think about the social use of literature, about trying to build better bridges between um, what academics do and the kind of everyday appreciation and enjoyment of literature and try and use his ideas really to develop a large um, body of scholarship and a large body of inter intellectual interaction. Mm. And the other thing I will say, actually, I've been really surprised. I mean, it's very nice to be doing this podcast here. And I did. I've also done recently an interview with a Chronicle. But those are really, you know, in 20 years, that's really been the extent of my um, my interview experience in the United States, whereas in three months in Denmark, I've done maybe eight interviews. Uh, the extent of uh, public curiosity and interest in what's going on in the humanities is actually quite extraordinary uh, here. And the, the amount, the, the extent of the knowledge uh, that 
journalists have about, you know, what's going on in literary studies, what's going on in sociology, what the current debate size is really very impressive. So I'd like to ask just a bit about you, if that's all right. First, where did you uh, grow up and go to school? Um, so I grew up in uh, Birmingham in England. So it's in the center of England, Ber- England's second, si- second city. And uh, by school, you mean university. So I did my undergraduate work mm. at Cambridge University in England. Uh, I must admit, I was pretty miserable at Cambridge. Uh, I was not happy there. And I didn't want to go on studying in England. And so I had one of those random encounters where I met someone um, from Australia, actually, in the University Library at Cambridge. And they said, go to Australia. And I thought, okay, I'll go to Australia. So I went and did my PhD um, at a place called Monash University in Melbourne. And I taught in Australia for seven years. I became an Australian citizen uh, before I moved to the United States. So were you, I think you mentioned this earlier in our conversation, but either in graduate school or before, were you a major proponent of critique uh, or or did you always treat it with, say, a a, a kind of suspicion? Well, I think in my my work, I've always done both. So in fact, I was trained, you know, I did my, as I think I mentioned, I did my PhD in a German department. And so I was trained in the Frankfurt School. Um, you know, with the kind of eminent tradition of critical theory coming out of Frankfurt in the 1930s. So when I now get, you know, a young whippersnappers reproaching me for not having a knowledge of Marxism, it's, it's hard to re- repress my sense of irritation because that really is a, is a tradition I know extremely well. Uh, well, not extremely well, but certainly fairly well, and I'm fairly familiar with. Um, so I'm certainly very, very um, well trained in that tradition of German style critical theory. And I've done quite a lot of critique, you know, in my past. I wrote a book on modernity, for example, where I sort of pointed out that much of the writing about the modern world and modern literature and what modernity was had been very much centered on the experience of men. You know, and that if you started thinking about what modernity meant for women, uh, you come up with a very different kind of picture. Uh, so I've certainly done quite a lot of critique in my past, and I'm not trying to repudiate my past, but I think at a certain point, I just started to feel that uh, I'd been doing so much of this and it was becoming a little bit predictable. I didn't think I was maybe just having a midlife or perhaps even a late life crisis, you know, and this is perhaps inevitable when you get to a certain age that uh, a certain pall falls over what you've been doing for a long time. It comes to Mm. seem overly dull and overly predictable. So uh, I certainly seriously thought about the extent to which um, my disenchantment with critique was either just a personal problem or a generational problem. What has really heartened me and surprised and delighted me is that when I've gone and done, uh, for example, uh, seminars on the book, is that I have a lot of young people uh, in their early 20s, graduate students, assistant professors coming up to me and saying, hey, you know, I'm so excited to have read your book. This this is wonderful. So it's clearly not just a generational issue. But yes, I have. I certainly have a training in, in, in the practice of critique. I know I have to let you go in a moment here, but just I'll ask quickly, what are your plans for future work, both at uh, the University of Southern Denmark as well as at Virginia, and then more broadly, if, if you can, what are your hopes for literary scholarship in general in the coming years? Well, so I'll be continuing at the University of Southern Denmark and at Virginia uh, for five years. I'll be splitting my time between both places for the next five years. And as I mentioned, you know, at, Virginia, at, uh, at Denmark, I'll be engaged in these large collaborative projects. At Virginia, I edit a journal, so that takes up some of my time, and I also um, teach undergraduates and graduate students. 
I'll be trying to write a book on our attachments to artworks. Um, so my current mm. project is trying to return to something that's interested me for a long time. Why do we become attached to certain artworks and not to others? I'm thinking here actually not just about literature. I'm also going to be talking about painting and music and film. Uh, so it's quite a broad project. Um, and then my hope more generally for literary studies is, uh, you know, the kind of uh, kind of aims I've been pointing to. I think a greater willingness to take on board the experiences of ordinary readers, not just to endorse them. Obviously, we're in universities. We're there to question, to challenge, to complicate, but not to simply dismiss those ordinary so-called experiences. You know, in fact, one of my arguments would be to say it's not just ordinary readers, for example, who feel a sense of enchantment when they read a novel. Academics do too, but we just don't talk about it. You know, we don't have a very good vocabulary for talking about our enchantment with artworks. And so instead we engage with this critical vocabulary, which comes much more easily and smoothly to us. But I think we could do a much better job of making connections between the kinds of passions we have for for novels or for plays or for paintings, or it might be, and the kind of enjoyment that lay readers or lay viewers have for works of art. Professor Felski, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. It was lovely to talk to you. That was Rita Felski, William R. Cannon Jr., professor of English at the University of Virginia and author of The Limits of Critique. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Rachel Bills and Kadar Jabbar edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.